Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So welcome, everyone. This is the last in the series on uh, foundations. And the foundation that I want to talk about uh, tonight is a theology of the body. Um, Now, there's no doubt we live in a society that is obsessed with sex and where there are many challenging issues. Everything from casual sex to promiscuity to pornography to homosexuality to transgender to gender fluidity. Um, And we have no hope of thinking through these challenging issues with the mind of Christ and in the light of Scripture, unless we understand God's design and purpose for the body. So that really is a foundation piece from which we can then think through about all these other issues. And to create that foundation, I want to look at three passages in particular from the letters of Peter and Paul. So from Paul's first letter to Corinthians chapter 6, He writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? From Romans 12, Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And from Peter's first letter, he writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So these three images of your body as a a temple, your body as a living sacrifice, and us as priests. I want to look at those three images and create this framework for thinking about a theology of the body. Now, those three images are very Jewish. Uh, and it's not surprising because Peter and Paul were Jewish and they were writing to early believers that were in large part also Jewish. And so to really understand um, these verses and what Peter and Paul are getting at, we have to kind of get into the headspace of what, uh, how a first century Jewish believer would have thought so that these words can really strike not only our minds but our hearts with the same power uh, that they had in the early church. So if we do this correctly, I will hopefully put you in the mindset of a first century Jewish believer. So to do this, if you'll indulge with me, we'll do a bit of time travel. Uh, we'll travel back to first century Corinth around 50 AD And uh, gentlemen, I want you to imagine that you're wearing your most comfortable toga and sandals. And ladies, you're also in toga and sandals, but of course you carry yours much more stylishly with a little brooch at the top and maybe a bit of a waistband. And you are part of a small middle class in Corinth made up largely of artisans, craftsmen, uh, teachers and tutors. And you are part of this middle class and your uh, family has been Jewish for many generations. Uh, They came to Corinth at the time of the exile, when the Jewish people were scattered uh, throughout the world. And uh, you've been there for generations and generations. And you are an artisan jeweler. And uh, having grown up in Corinth and having had your family be there for many generations, you have a pride in where you live. Because Corinth is a major seaport and trading center. So anybody who's anybody comes through Corinth who in in traveling through the Roman Empire, and pretty much anything that you want to get across the known world you can find in Corinth. So it's kind of a hip happening, edgy kind of place. Uh, And whether it's spices that you want to get from the Orient or rare wood from Africa, you can find it in Corinth. 
Now, like every big cosmopolitan center, it has a bit of a seedy underbelly. Uh, because of all the seamen and the mariners coming uh, through, there's a bit of a red light district. And in fact, there's a bit of a saying uh, at, at that time that says, if you live like a Corinthian, you're living a bit fast and loose and a bit immorally. Um, so that gives you a picture of, uh, of what that, that setting is like. And being middle class, you live in an apartment and to the right and the left of you, you have neighbors. And so on one side, you have Albus and Claudia. Albus is a sculptor. Uh, and on the other side, Balbus is a uh, mosaic artist. So those are your neighbors. And when you're out on the veranda overlooking first century Corinth, which might look a little bit like this, they call it a portico in Rome, but it's a veranda. You, you're in conversation with your neighbors and naturally the topics that come up are politics and religion because everybody is very interested in what their government is doing and everybody at that point believes in some kind of God. So those are the two natural topics. And so when you're conversing with your neighbors, what you find out about them is that uh, Albus and Claudia uh, worship at the temple of Aphrodite. Now, there are many temples of Aphrodite in every major city, but the, the one in Corinth happens to be a really big one. It's almost like a mega church of the time. And because Aphrodite is the goddess of love, her temples have become uh, centers of prostitution. And historical records show us that there were over a thousand paid and unpaid prostitutes working in the temple. So needless to say, Albus loves going to temple. He doesn't need to be asked twice. And when he doesn't get his fill of sexual gratification at the temple, he comes home and uses his two servants at home. And of course, as you imagine, this does not go down well with Claudia. And even though the walls are made of stone between your two apartments, you can hear the rows that go on. Now, Balbus on the other side, um, he and uh, Celia go to the temple of Apollo. And Apollo being the god of music, poetry, beauty, uh, and youth, his temples are centers of male prostitution. And if you thought that the rows uh, between Albus and Claudia were loud, the ones between uh, Balbus and Celia are even louder. This does not go down well um, in, their, in their marital life. And so when it comes to your turn to talk about your religion, they simply do not understand synagogue because you go, the men and the women sit separately and you listen to the word of God and to the teaching and there's no sex involved anywhere. So they just cannot get their heads around this. It does not make sense to them. So with that background, we look at the first image of the temple. Now, as we said, um, even pagan societies had temples and they had many temples uh, throughout major cities. Now, as a Jewish person, there are many synagogues in every uh, city, but there is only one temple because you believe that God is one and he is only in the one temple in Jerusalem. God does not divide himself. And so that temple is a sacred place for you. It plays a huge role in your Jewish identity because you believe that it is the place where God is physically dwelling on earth. The reason it has such a big uh, part of your identity is that when the Israelites left the slavery of Egypt, wandered in the desert for 40 years and before they came to the promised land, God moved with them. God wandered with them as they wandered through the desert. And if you remember, there was the tent of tabernacle. And uh, when they you know, picked up their tents and went, they, they pitched the tent of tabernacle and then God would be present with them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
And then when they finally settled in the promised land, Solomon built a lasting temple and God lived in that temple. So that was 950 BC when Solomon uh, first uh, built it. And it lasted until uh, 550 BC, so 400 years, until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And then it took 50 years to rebuild, so 500 BC. And in 50 BC, when you're living in Corinth, that second temple is still there, still active. And like every Jew in the diaspora, you send money every year for the upkeep of the temple. And you hope that one day you will make your pilgrimage there uh, and, and see the temple with your own eyes. And that temple, it's hard to underestimate the role that it plays in your Jewish identity, because as we said, that temple is where God lives. So the innermost part of the temple, the sanctuary, was the Holy of Holies. And if you remember from the Old Testament, the high, only one of the high priests got to go in there only once a year, and it was a terrible and awesome and fearful thing. You could fall dead and they had to tie a rope around your leg and pull you out because nobody else could go in. So it was the one time when you came face to face with the very presence of God. And in your mind, this is like, for those of you who are science fiction buffs, you know those movies where there are portals from one world to the next? This is like a portal. This is the portal between heaven and earth. It's the one place where heaven and earth touch. It is a sacred place. And although the rest of the temple could be um, considered built by human hands, the Holy of Holies is like God's real estate. It belongs to him, it's his house, and it is absolutely holy. Now, to understand this even more, the temple is the key fundamental value, is the key to human health and happiness and flourishing. And to understand this, we have to go back to our present day. So if I were to ask you, what is the one fundamental value that is the key to our human happiness and health and flourishing, you would have to say uh, freedom and individual liberty. We, we almost take it for granted that for us to be free, we have to have the ability to choose. It's so fundamental, we almost can't articulate why that is. It's, it's, uh, it just is. And so in the same way, to a Jewish person in the first century, their fundamental value would not be freedom, but it would be order and design. And the idea was that when God was on his throne in the Holy of Holies, order and design flowed out from there into the rest of the temple, into the rest of the country, into the rest of the world, into the rest of the cosmos. And when you cooperated with God's order and design, everything was as it should be. There was a sense of shalom in that you were in right relationship with God and you were in right relationship with each other. So it is what, when God was in his temple, that gave you meaning and purpose, created your whole worldview and made everything um, healthy and happy and flourishing. Um, the way John Walton puts it in his book, Old Testament Theology for Christians, he writes, the temple was the central and fundamental component of the cosmos. As God sat enthroned at the temple, the order established through creation was maintained, the forces threatening that order were held at bay, and the health and cohesion of the community was maintained. Now, you're thrown a curveball because at synagogue last week, they read out a letter from this upstart young rabbi called Paul. And in it, this is what he writes. He says, your body is temple of the Holy Spirit. Now in, in English, we need articles. So we'd say your body is a temple or your body is the temple. But in the Greek, there are no articles. So Paul is actually writing your body is temple. And 
temple, the word that he uses in the Greek is neos, which means the dwelling place. So he's referring to the dwelling place of God. He's saying this is the holy of holies. It is God's real estate that we're talking about here. And so do you, do you understand how radical this is? He is using an image that the Jewish people have known and thought they understood for generations. And then suddenly he's flipping it. And it has three implications. He's saying the holy place that you thought was out there in Jerusalem far away, that holy place is now in here. That holy of holies, instead of being far away, is now right here in your body. And the way the, holy pri the, the uh, high priest would go in and be in the presence of God only one time a year, you can now have that intimacy and that closeness every day right where you are. Because that is the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and that Holy of Holies is now here physically in your body. And when you live in right relationship with your body, and you use your body in accordance with what God intended, you end up living in right relationship with God and experiencing that shalom. And that is the key to human health and happiness and thriving. So when you treat your body according to God's design, you are participating with God's order and sharing in that sense of shalom that, that flows out of him. Do you understand how radical this is? It's almost heretical, and you can understand why the Pharisees w couldn't make sense of it, because it is just so revolutionary. So that's, that's the temple image. Now, Paul takes it further. In that passage from 1 Corinthians, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And the Greek word he uses is porneia, from which we get our modern word pornography. And that is kind of the Greek catch-all term for any kind of sexuality that is outside God's order and God's design. So he says, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So here you have to remember that the worst thing that could ever happen in the world, in the Jewish mind, was that the temple would be desecrated. You remember in the Old Testament, they never wanted the invading armies to ever enter the Holy of Holies because that would dishonor God and desecrate that place. So what Paul is saying is now that the Holy of Holies is in here, why would you ever desecrate God's presence with, by doing something that is disrespectful to him or dishonorable or not according to his order and his design. He says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. And there again, we see that idea that the Holy of Holies was not part of earth, it was part of heaven. It was God's real estate, if you will. And Paul is saying, this is now God's real estate, your own flesh and blood. So now we get to the second image, which is your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I don't know the last time you went to the temple and offered the sacrifice, so we're not familiar with all the different sacrifices. But of course, a Jewish here listening to this would have known all the different sacrifices from the time that they had gone to the equivalent of Sunday school. So just to fill in that background, there are two different kinds of sacrifice, uh, one kind of grain sacrifice and four kinds of blood sacrifice, which is where an animal is uh, sacrificed. And all of them in one way or another are to restore and maintain right relationship with God and with the injured party. And so four out of the five 
uh, sacrifices were shared either with the priest or with the injured third party because that was the way to make restoration and bring about right relationship again uh, between you, God, the priest, and the injured party. But there is one kind of uh, sacrifice, the burnt sacrifice, uh, where the animal was completely burnt on the altar to God alone, and it wasn't shared with anyone else. And theologians believe that when Paul said, offer your bodies as a living, living sacrifice, he meant the burnt sacrifice. So there again, he's saying it's the one sacrifice that is God's real estate. It belongs entirely to him. And there's that image again, your body is not your own, you were bought at a price. You see how it ties together? Now to understand what the sacrifice meant, in, ter in terms of the Hebrew mindset, we said that they were all about restoring and maintaining right relationship with God. And to understand how that, how that actually took place, we have to look at the second part of the verse. He says, because this is your spiritual act of worship. So how can something physical have a spiritual dimension? Well, we have to look at what the Greek word for spiritual was, and it's logikon, from which we get the English logical. So it's got that, that impression of it is logical, it is fitting, it is appropriate to do this. And so the logic behind the sacrifices that was that when you offered grain or you offered one of the animals, you took something that God had created and you were offering it back to the giver in a way that was honoring and pleasing to him. So just to draw an analogy, if you had a friend who was a great artist and they painted you a canvas and instead of hanging it on your wall, you used it as a placemat and got food over it and got it burnt, that would not be honoring to the artist. Or if you had a friend who was a great knitter and they did you a beautiful sweater, but instead of wearing it, you mopped the kitchen floor with it, it would be dishonoring to the artist. And so this is the idea behind a living sacrifice. You are recognizing that your body is a gift from God and in using it according to his order and his design, you are honoring him in the way that you are using it. And the radical thing is that now, instead of offering a sacrifice only when you're able to go to the temple that once in a lifetime or once in a year, Paul is saying you can now offer a sacrifice in your body every day wherever you are. And that is absolutely radical, not only in your sexuality, but in every area of life. Your whole being is, is an active and ongoing living sacrifice uh, to God. Let's go to the third image now, which is uh, us as a uh, royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now, for the, to the Jewish mind, the role of a priest was absolutely important and uh, set apart. And in fact, you, only one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, could become uh, high priests because this was a very high calling. And the thought was that the life of a priest had to reflect the, the character, the purity, the integrity of God. And that's why in the Old Testament, whenever the high priests failed in doing that, it was so catastrophic because their life was meant to be a witness to the character and the purity uh, of God. And so what Peter is saying here is that now it's not just uh, uh, the tribe of Levi that can be priest. Every believer is a priest. And in your life, in how you carry on um, your sex, your relationship, how you do sexuality, is your witness to the world about the character, the integrity, and the purity uh, of God. Uh, Nancy Piercy, who wrote, who's the American theologian who wrote the book uh, Love Thy Body, puts it this way. She says, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. 
So in, in how we use our bodies, we testify to uh, the character of God, the purity of God, and it's a witness uh, to the rest of the world that is not just reserved for a priest, but is reserved for every believer. The second thing that comes out of the image of, of a priest for a Jewish uh, person is the idea of spiritual warfare. So if you remember many times in the Old Testament when the Israelites went out to war, the, the priests and the musicians were at the head of the army, uh, singing praises and worshiping because that had spiritual power. And this is why when Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin, offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And the Greek word for instruments of righteousness is hopla, which is literally a weapon of war. So what he is saying is how you treat your body and, and how you carry your sexuality is actually a weapon, a spiritual weapon. And what you do with your body in this physical world has consequences in the spiritual world. And in fact, it's one of the principles of spiritual warfare that you counter the prevailing spirit of a culture with an equal and opposite spirit, right? So if you have a culture of stinginess, you respond with a spirit of generosity. If you have a culture of cruelty, you respond with a spirit of kindness. And so in our current culture of sexual promiscuity, when we respond with purity and integrity, that is engaging in spiritual warfare. So we come to the wrap up. We've covered a lot of ground. We've looked at the body um, as a temple, the body as a living sacrifice, and the role of us as priests. And instead of doing the professor thing and doing a didactic summary like I would in a lecture, um, we're going to do time travel in reverse. So instead of us having gone back to 50 AD and first century Corinth, what we're going to do is bring Paul forward to our current time, our modern time, and try to imagine what Paul would be saying to us about this in our own language. So if you'll bear with me, I will read to you from Paul's first letter to the Novocastrians. Hopefully, if I've done this right, you will hear Paul's heart um, about this. Like they did in the early church where Paul would send out letters and it would be read out the front in the synagogue, we're doing the same thing in the modern day. So Paul's first letter to the Novocastrians, chapter one, verse one. From Paul, an apostle of the Lord, to the saints in Newcastle, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have longed to visit you many times, but have been caught in another lockdown in Melbourne and have not been able to cross the border. Praise be to God our Father for the good news of abundant life revealed through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for your thirst to know these deep truths more and more. In the days of the patriarchs and the prophets, the children of Israel believed that God's physical presence was first in the tabernacle and then in the temple built by Solomon. When the Israelites saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, they knew that God was on his throne and all was as it should be everything ordered according to his authority. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus, co-equal with the Father in power and glory, deigned to take on human likeness and come to earth as a servant. Can you imagine it? Plato believed that the body is unworthy and base. The Gnostics believe the body counts for nothing and can be indulged. And the Epicureans believe the body is nothing but atoms with no spirit. But we believe that mortal flesh and blood hosted the presence of God's own Son. Do you understand what this means? By the Holy Spirit, Jesus now dwells in our bodies. 
we no longer need to look to the bricks and mortar of the temple to see God's presence. He has built a new temple in us of flesh and blood. The sacred and holy place out there in Jerusalem has become the holy place in here. Do you grasp the value that this places on your body? Will you then defile it and desecrate it with casual sex and one night stands? Will you dishonor the Holy Spirit by engaging in sexual perversion and promiscuity? Heaven forbid, God is love and God is community, giving and receiving love between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. God himself invented sex as a physical representation of this, giving and receiving love between Adam and Eve, mirroring his community and sharing his creative capacity, inviting us to be co-creators of new life. God designed sex to be powerful and potent, and hence a dangerous force, engaging your body, soul, and spirit. There's no such thing as safe sex. Who's hoodwinked you? Do you think a condom will protect you from these powerful forces? Do you think you can disengage your body from your soul and spirit? On the contrary, this sort of futile thinking splits your innermost self, putting your body at war with your soul and spirit and leading to nothing but hurt, despair, and darkness. You are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works and with his good purposes in mind. His rules and precepts are not to constrain or hinder your freedom and happiness. On their contrary, they're meant for your flourishing and your growth. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. He will lead you to wholeness, body, soul, and spirit, kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. On that day when you appear before him, the word incarnate will himself divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. On that day, his desire will not be to destroy the body, but instead to restore it to its original glory and purpose. After all, he created it. Like the Olympic athletes in Beijing, strive hard after purity and holiness, so that on that day you can appear before him holy and blameless in Christ. Make your whole life a living sacrifice, offering God your best in every aspect, whether it be physically, emotionally, intellectually, or spiritually, strive for purity and holiness, seeking to honor God, not yourself, since you know that, he that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And remember that these decisions don't, ju don't just affect you as an individual, they are part of your witness. Where else will those who have not yet heard the gospel see a different way of relating and honoring the body if not from you? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Remember too that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and principalities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Consider the members of your body as equipment issued by our Lord and Master, whether they be the organs of vision, of speech, of hearing, of action, or of sex, use them wisely as they were intended. They are your weapons in this war with the enemy. Remember that your actions in this realm have repercussions in the spiritual realm, and right actions in this one strike a blow to the enemy in the other. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Don't be conformed to the world and its slogans. I've heard them too. My body, my choice, or keep your laws off my body. But remember, you are not your own. You are bought at an enormous price, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Therefore, honor God with your body.
All the brothers and sisters here in Melbourne greet you warmly in the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love to you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So hopefully you've been able to, I've been able to channel Paul and you, you get a sense of his passion and his desire and the vision that he has of what God means for us uh, in, in our bodies. And so I just want to invite you to maybe sit with those three images for the next week, the temple, the living sacrifice and, and priest, and just let the Holy Spirit uh, speak to you and challenge you about what area of your life does he want you uh, to look at. And as I said, this was just a foundation so that we can think through all the other issues. Uh, and Rachel told me that um, in, at the end of March, there will be a grapple talk to continue this conversation uh, further. And there will be even more uh, beyond that. But I'll put in a plug for the grapple at the end of March to, to take this to the next step. Thank you so much for joining us today. Take some time now to consider what really stood out to you in that message. God has been speaking to you and what is it that He said to you? If you're in the room with someone else, turn and share with them what stood out to you. And I say to them, how can I pray for you? Share with them something that you love about God and something that you're thankful for this week. Or phone someone and ask them those questions. What do you love about God? What are you thankful for this week? And how can I pray for you? Bless you and have a great week.